welcome back to another chapter of Womance's public access read-along of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Bront. Bronte. Bronte. We had this conversation a long time ago. Uh, and it's all out of my head. Um, it's, don't be offended. It's because I think it's not that important. <laughs> Everyone's dead who would care. Things I keep in my mind. My big three. Everyone I know's big three astrological signs. <laughs> Things I don't keep in my head. The pronunciation of this author's last name. Fair. Uh, first of all, hello. Uh, my name is Morgan. I read the odd chapters, the oddly numbered chapters of Jane Eyre to my friend Isabeau. And my name is Isabeau, and I read the even chapters to my friend, Delighting Bubbleguts Morgan. <laughs> and along the way, we interrupt each other um, with our thoughts and feelings as we go along. Um, and this week, we are in chapter 30. Which means I'm reading. Yes. And, oh, and that means I'm recapping. Yep. Morgan, would you tell us what happened in chapter 29? I guess. Um, so Jane awakes uh, from her starvation stupor and gets to know the residents of the home in which she is interred. Um, first of all, she meets Hannah, and Hannah is the housekeeper, and she's elderly, and she has a very thick northern accent, and Jane thinks very little of her, but somehow wins her over. Jane remains um, an absolute fangirl of the D'Amelio sisters of this novel. Um, and then she also uh, has some interesting observations about their big minister brother uh, and his blue eyes and his nice nose, um, even though she overheard him saying he didn't think she was very pretty. It's true. Um, and she's uh, asked him, like, hey, all I need from you is to keep give me shelter until I get better, then help me find a job, Bob. And he's like, all right. We'll see, plain Jane. We'll see, Ugo. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that is where we, we pick up for chapter 30. Okay. The more I knew of the inmates of Moore House, the better I liked them. In a few days, I had so far recovered my health that I could sit up all day and walk out sometimes. I could join with Diana and Mary and all their occupations, converse with them as much as they wished, and aid them when and where they would allow me. There was a reviving pleasure in this intercourse of a kind now tasted by me for the first time, the pleasure arising from perfect congeniality of taste, sentiments, and principles." I like to read what they like to read. What they enjoyed delighted me. What they approved, I reverenced. They loved their sequestered home. I, too, in the gray, small, antique structure, with its low roof, its latticed casements, its moldering walls, its avenue of aged firs, all grown aslant under the stress of mountain wind, its garden, dark with yew and holly, and where no flowers but of the hardiest species would bloom, found a charm, both potent and permanent." They clung to the purple moors behind and around their dwelling, to the hollow vale into which the pebbly bridle path 
leading from their gate descended, and which wound between fern banks first, and then amongst a few of the wildest little pasture fields that ever bordered a wilderness of heath, or gave sustenance to a flock of grey moorland sheep with their little mossy-faced lambs. They clung to this scene, I say, with a perfect enthusiasm of attachment. I could comprehend the feeling, and share both its strength and truth. I saw the fascination of the locality. I felt the consecration of its loneliness. My eye feasted on the outline of swell and sweep, on the wild coloring communicated to ridge and dell by moss, by heath bell, by flower-sprinkled turf, by brilliant bracken and mellow granite crag. These details were just to me what they were to them, so many pure and sweet sources of pleasure, the strong blast and the soft breeze, the rough and halcyon day, the hours of sunrise and sunset, the moonlight and the clouded night, developed for me in these regions the same attraction as for them, wound round my faculties the same spell that entranced theirs. Indoors, we agreed equally well. They were both more accomplished and better read than I was, but with eagerness I followed them in the path of knowledge they had trodden before me. I devoured the books they lent me. Then it was full satisfaction to discuss with them in the evening what I had pursued during the day. Thought fitted thought, opinion met opinion. We coincided, in short, perfectly. If, in our trio, there was a superior and a leader, it was Diana. She was handsome. She was vigorous. In her animal spirits, there was an affluence of life and certainty of flow, such as excited my wonder, while baffled my comprehension. I could talk a while when the evening commenced, but the first gush of vivacity and fluency gone, I was fain to sit on a stool at Diana's feet, to rest my head on her knee, and listen alternately to her and Mary while they sounded thoroughly the topic on which I had but touched. Diana offered to teach me German. I liked to learn of her. I saw the part of instructress pleased and suited her. That of scholar pleased and suited me no less. Our natures dovetailed. Mutual affection of the strongest kind was the result. They discovered I could draw. Their pencils and color boxes were immediately at my service. My skill, greater in this one point than theirs, surprised and charmed them. Mary would sit and watch me by the hour together. Then she would take lessons in a docile, intelli intelligent, assiduous pupil she made. Thus occupied and mutually entertained, days passed like hours and weeks like days. As to Mr. St. John, the intimacy which had arisen so naturally and rapidly between me and his sisters did not extend to him. One reason of the distance yet observed between us was that he was comparatively seldom at home. A large proportion of his time appeared devoted to visiting the sick and poor among the scattered population of his parish. No weather seemed to hinder him in these pastoral excursions, rain or fair, he would, when his hours of morning study were over, take his hat and follow by his father's old pointer, Carlo, go out on his mission of love or duty. I scarcely know in which light he regarded it. Sometimes, when the day was very unfavorable, his sisters would expostulate. He would then say with a peculiar smile, more solemn than cheerful, and if I let a gust of wind or a sprinkling of rain turn me aside from these easy tasks, what preparation would such sloth be for the future I propose to myself? Diana and Mary's general answer to this question was a sigh and some minutes of apparently mournful meditation. But besides his frequent absences, there was another barrier to friendship with him. He seemed of a reserved and abstracted and even of a brooding nature. Zealous in his <laughs> ministerial labors, blameless in his life and habits, and he did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content, which should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. 
Often of an evening, he would sit at the window, his desk and papers before him. He would cease reading or writing, rest his chin on his hand, and deliver himself up to, uh, up to I know not what course of thought, but that it was perturbed and exciting might be seen in the frequent flash and changeful dilation of his eye. Sounds so much like Jane. It's like she's, <laughs> it's like she's seeing herself. And she doesn't like it. As human beings typically do when they meet themselves. It's true. I think, moreover, that nature was not to him that treasury of delight it was to his sisters. He expressed once, and but once in my hearing, a strong sense of the rugged charm of the hills, and an inborn affection for the dark roof and hoary walls he called his home, but there was more of a gloom than pleasure in the tone and words in which the sentiment was manifested, and never did he seem to roam the moors for the sake of their soothing silence, never seek out or dwell upon the thousand peaceful delights they could yield. He only said he liked his own home once. He only talked about the hills once. Incommunicative as he was, some time elapsed before I had an opportunity of gauging his mind. I first got an idea of its caliber when I heard him preach in his own church at Morton. I wish I could describe that sermon, but it is past my power. I cannot even render faithfully the effect it produced on me. It began calm, and indeed, as far as delivery and pitch of voice went it was calm to the end an earnestly felt yet strictly restrained zeal breathed soon in the distinct accents and prompted the nervous language this grew to force compressed condensed and controlled the heart was thrilled the mind was astonished but the power of the preacher neither was softened Throughout, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of conciliatory gentleness, stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines. Election, predestination, reprobation were frequent, and each reference to these points sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness, for it seemed to me, I know not whether equally so to others, that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay turbid dregs of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. I was sure that St. John Rivers, pure-lived, conscientious, zealous as he was, had not yet found the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. He had no more found it, I thought, than had I." with my concealed and racking regrets from my broken idol and lost Elysium, regrets to which I have latterly avoided referring, but which possessed me and tyrannized me, tyrannized over me ruthlessly. Meantime, (laughs) a month was gone. Diana and Mary were soon to leave Morehouse and return to their far different life and scene which awaited them as governesses in a large fashionable south of England city, where each held a situation in families by whose wealthy and haughty members they were regarded only as humble dependents and who neither knew nor sought one of their innate excellences and appreciated only their acquired accomplishments as they appreciated the skill of their cook or the taste of their waiting woman. Mr. Sinjin had said nothing to me yet about the employment he had promised to obtain for me, yet it became urgent that I should have a vocation of some kind. One morning, being left alone with him a few minutes in the parlor, I ventured to approach the window recess, which his table, chair, and desk consecrated as a kind of study. I was going to speak, though not very well, knowing in what words to frame my inquiry, for it, all, for it 
is at all times difficult to break the ice of reserve glassing over such natures as his, when he saved me the trouble by being the first to commence a dialogue. Looking up as I drew near, You have a question to ask of me? he said. Yes, I wish to know whether you have heard of any service I am offer myself to undertake. I found or devised something for you three weeks ago, but as you seem both useful and happy here, as my sisters had evidently become attached to you and your society gave them unusual pleasure, I deemed it inexpedient to break in on your mutual comfort till their approaching departure from Marsh End should render yours necessary. And they will go in three days now, I said. Yes, and when they go, I shall return to the parsonage at Morton. Hannah will accompany me and this old house will be shut up. Oh, that's what's going to happen to Hannah. (laughs) <laughs> I was worried about her. Uh, I wonder how his current housekeeper is going to feel about that. I don't know. I waited a few moments, expecting he would go on with the subject first broached, but he seemed to have entered another train of reflection. His look denoted abstraction from me and my business. I was obliged to recall him to the theme, which was the ne- of necess- necessity of one of close and anxious interest to me. What is the employment you had in view, Mr. Rivers? I hope this delay will not have increased the difficulty of securing it. Oh, no, since it is an employment which depends only on me to give and you to accept. He again paused. There seemed a reluctance to continue. I grew impatient. A restless movement or two and an eager exacting glance fastened on his face conveyed the feeling to him of effectually as words could have done and with less trouble. You need be in no hurry to hear, he said. Let me frankly tell you, I have nothing eligible or profitable to suggest. Before I explain, recall, if you please, my notice clearly given, that if I helped you, it must be as a blind man would help the lame. I am poor, for I find that when I have paid my father's debts, all the patrimony remaining to me will be this crumbling grange, the row of scathed firs behind, and the patch of moorish soil with the yew trees and holly bushes in front. I am obscure. Rivers is an old name, but of the three sole descendants of the race, two earn the dependence crust among strangers, and the third considers himself an alien from his native country, not only for life, but in death. Yes, and Deems is bound to deem himself honored by the lot, and aspires but after the day when the cross of separation from fleshly ties shall be laid on his shoulders, and when the head of that church militant, whose humblest members he is one, shall give the word, Rise, follow me fleshly ties Sinjin. also it sounds like he doesn't like the house that much he's being awfully rude about it doesn't like the house (laughs) hence why he only talked about it the one time (laughs) turns out jane read that correctly yeah Sinjin said these words as he pronounced his sermons with a quiet deep voice with an unflushed cheek and a corsicating radiance of glance he resumed And since I am myself poor and obscure, I can offer you but a service of poverty and obscurity. You may even think it degrading, for I see how your habits have been what the world calls refined. Your tastes lean to the ideal, and your society has at least been amongst the educated. But I consider that no services degrades, which can better our race. I hold that the more arid and unreclaimed the soil where the Christian's laborer's task of tillage is appointed him, the scantier the meat the mead his toil brings, the higher the honor. His, under such circumstances, is the destiny of the pioneer, and the first pioneers of the gospel were the apostles. Their captain was Jesus, the Redeemer himself. (laughs) Fleshly fleshly ties, and Jesus is the captain. (laughs) I consider myself a lieutenant in the captain's army. Fleshly ties. (laughs) Well, I said, as he again paused. 
you don't like the way I'm reading Sinjin? I like it a lot. It's just like so much of this book I'm realizing is just men rattling off what they think like their own life stories to Jane like briefly punctuated and excused by like how their assumptions about how Jane is thinking and feeling about them and <laughs> and like they are like as like Sinjin and Rochester are as like purpley as one another yes uh, even though like I do think Rochester is significantly more, like, pagan in his, like, chosen metaphors and things. Totally. But I, it's reminding me of, like, um, there's a, a podcast where people go on, like, a hinge date and then they talk about their hinge date individually with the host of the podcast. And one thing that consistently comes up is the women being, like... He didn't really ask me anything about myself, and he just kind of, like, talked on and on and on about himself. And then the host will then ask the gentleman, like, uh, what did you – tell me some stuff. What did you learn about her? And the men are always just like, She's so easy to talk to. Yeah. At best. Most of the time, they can't even think about that, which means they were, like, struggling hard to not ask a question. And it's just like – The fact that this book remains evergreen is – I don't think people are, like, consciously thinking of, like, this is what it's like to date a hetero today. But, like, the fact that this book remains timeless is such a condition. Like, we can't really look back on it and think that anything that's happening is particularly silly, even though you and I laugh about it. It's the laugh of recognition, not the laugh of it being silly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this book could easily be titled rather than Jane Eyre. It's just men explain things to Jane Eyre. Well, I said, as he again paused, proceed. He looked at me before he proceeded. Indeed, he seemed leisurely to read my face, as if its features and lines were characters on a page. The conclusions drawn from this scrutiny he partially expressed in his succeeding observations. I believe you accept the post I offer you, said he, and hold it for a while, not permanently, though, any more than I could permanently keep the narrow and narrowing, the tranquil, hidden office of English country incumbent. For in your nature is an alloy as detrimental to repose as that in mine, though of a different kind. Do explain, I urged when he halted once more. I will, and you shall hear how poor the proposal is, how trivial, how cramping. I shall not stay long at Morton, now that my father is dead and that I am my own master. I shall leave the place probably in the course of a twelve-month. But while I do stay, I will exert myself to the utmost for its improvement. Morton, when I came to it two years ago, had no school. The children of the poor were excluded from every hope of progress. I established one for boys. I mean now to open a second school for girls. I have hired a building for the purpose, with a cottage of two rooms attached to it for the mistress's house. Her salary will be 30 pounds a year. Her house is already furnished, very simply, but sufficiently, by the kindness of a lady, Miss Oliver, the only daughter of the sole rich man in my parish, Mr. Oliver. (laughs) For your edification. (laughs) (laughs) The proprietor of a needle factory and iron foundry in the valley. Is it like that Bible verse that's like a rich man is as likely to get into heaven as a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? Feels a little that way. 
The same lady pays for the education and clothing of an orphan from the workhouse on condition that she shall aid the mistress in such menial offices connected with her own house and the school as her occupation of teaching will prevent her from having time to discharge in person. Will you be this mistress? He put the question rather hurriedly. He seemed half to expect an indignant or at least disdainful rejection of the offer, not knowing all my thoughts and feelings, though guessing some. He could not tell in what light the lot would appear to me. In truth, it was humble, but then it was sheltered, and I wanted a safe asylum. It was plodding, but then, compared with that of a governess in a rich house, it was independent, and the fear of servitude with strangers entered my soul like iron. It was not ignoble, not unworthy, not mentally degrading. I made my decision. I thank you for your propo- for the proposal, Mr. Rivers, and I accept it with all my heart. But you comprehend me, he said. It is a village school. Your scholars will be only poor girls, cottagers' children, at the best, farmers' daughters. Knitting, sewing, reading, writing, ciphering will be all you will have to teach. That what will you do with your accomplishments? What with the largest portion of your mind, sentiments, tastes? Save them till they are wanted. They will keep. You know what you undertake, then. I do. Now he smiled. Not a bitter or sad smile, but one well-pleased and deeply gratified. And when will you commence the exercise of your function? I will go to my house tomorrow and open the school, if you like, next week. Very well. So be it. He rose and walked through the room. Standing still, he again looked at me. He shook his head. What do you disapprove of, Mr. Rivers? I asked. You will not stay at Morton long. No. No. Why? What is your reason for saying so? I read it in your eye. It is not the... It is not of that description which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious. He repeated, no. What made you think of ambition? Who is ambitious? I know I am. But how did you find it out? I was speaking of myself? Well, if you are not ambitious, you are. He paused. What? I was going to say impassioned, but perhaps you would have misunderstood the word and been displeased. I mean that human affections and sympathies have a most powerful hold on you. I am sure you cannot long be content to pass your leisure in solitude and devote your working hours to a monotonous labor, wholly void of stimulus. Any more than I can be content, he added with emphasis, to live here buried in morass, pent in with mountain. My nature, that God gave me, contravened my faculties, heaven bestowed, paralyzed, made useless— You hear now how I contradict myself. I, who preach contentment with a humble lot and justify the vocation even of hewers of wood and drawers of water in God's service, I, his ordained minister, almost rave in my restlessness. Well, propensities and principles must be reconciled by some means. He left the room. (laughs) In this brief hour, I had learnt more of him than in the whole previous month. Yet still, he puzzled me. He's got a lot on his plate. Sure. He's just unhappy. Yeah. He's ambitious and uh, doesn't want to be a humble preacher. Also, he clearly thinks less of everyone else around him. Yes. Yeah. Not unlike Rochester. <laughs> uh, not unlike Jane. Not unlike Jane. Diana and Mary Rivers became more sad and silent as the day approached for leaving their brother and their home. They both tried to appear as usual, but the sorrow they had to struggle against was one that could not be entirely conquered or concealed. Diana intimated that this would be a different parting from any they had yet ever known, for it would it would probably, as far as St. St. John was concerned, be a parting for years. It might be a parting for life. 
He will sacrifice all to his long-framed resolve, she said, natural affection and feelings more potent still. Sinjin looks quiet, Jane, but he hides a fever in his vitals. You would think him gentle, yet in some things he is inexorable as death, and the worst of it is, my conscience will hardly permit me to dissuade him from his severe decision. Certainly I cannot for a moment blame him for it. It is right, noble, Christian, yet it breaks my heart. And the tears gushed to her fine eyes. Mary bent her head low over her work. We are now without a father. We shall soon be without home and brother, she murmured. At that moment, a little incident supervened, which seemed decreed by fate purposefully to prove the truth of the adage that misfortune, misfortunes never come singly, and to add to their distress the vexing one of the slip between the cup and the lip. Sinjin passed the window reading a letter. He entered. Our Uncle John is dead, said he. Both the sisters seemed struck, not shocked or appalled. The tidings appeared in their eyes, rather momentous than afflicting. Dead, repeated Diana. Yes. She riveted a searching gaze on her brother's face. And what then, she demanded in a low voice. What then, die? he replied, maintaining a marble immobility of feature. What then? Why, nothing. Read. He threw the letter into her lap. She glanced over it and handed it to Mary. Mary perused it in silence and returned it to her brother. All three looked at each other and all three smiled. A dreary, pensive smile. Enough. Amen. We can yet live, said Diana at last. At any rate, it makes us no more worse off than we were before, remarked Mary. Only it forces rather strongly on the mind the picture of what might have been, said Mr. Rivers, and contrasts it somewhat too vividly with what is. He folded the letter, locked it in his desk, and again went out. For some minutes, no one spoke. Diana then turned to me. Jane, you will wonder at us in our mystery, she said, and think us hard-hearted beings not to be more moved at the death of so near a relation as an uncle. But we have never seen him or known him. He was my mother's brother. My father and he quarreled long ago. It was by his advice that my father risked most of his property in the speculation that ruined him. Mutual recriminations passed between them. They parted in anger and were never reconciled. My uncle engaged afterwards in more prosperous undertakings it appears he realized a fortune of twenty thousand pounds he was never married and had no near kindred but ourselves and one other person not more closely related than we my father always cherished the idea that he would atone for his error by leaving his possessions to us the letter informs us that he has bequeathed every penny to the other relation with the exception of 30 guineas to be divided between saint john diana and mary rivers for the purchase of three mourning rings he had a right, of course, to do as he pleased, and yet a momentary damp is cast on the spirits by the receipt of such news. Mary and I would have esteemed ourselves rich with a thousand pounds each, and to St. John, such a sum would have been valuable for the good it would have been it would have enabled him to do. This explanation given, the subject was dropped, and no further reference made to it by either Mr. Rivers or his sisters. The next day, I left Marchand for Morton. The day after, Diana and Mary quitted it for a distant fee. In a week, Mr. Rivers and Hannah repaired to the parsonage and sold. The old Grange was abandoned. Sinjin's a little ambitious buster. He's got some kind of mystery dream that his sisters know about, but no one's thought to articulate to Jane. Uh, Jane is just uh, putting pictures of Diana and Mary all over her trapper keeper. <laughs> She doesn't know which one she loves more. Yeah. Uh, Probably Diana, though. Yeah, and it sounds like they have a bad uncle. Who has been kind to a near relation 
and bequeathed that person all their money. I like that he like bequeathed enough money for mourning rings. What are mourning rings? Rings I imagine you wear to show that you're in mourning. And why would you mourn a man who only gave you enough money to mourn him? The hubris of that. Like, I'm not going to leave you any money but enough to purchase a mourning ring for me. For me. Um, In memory, it often bears the name and date of death of the person. An uncle you'd never met. Now you get to wear his ring. They were usually paid for by the person commemorated or their heirs and often specified along with the list of intended recipients in wills. Mm. A lot of times they would have a lock of hair. Fascinating. Morning rituals are so weird. Um. All right. So I feel like Jane has met herself in Sinjin in a lot of ways. And we already talked about how this so much of this book is actually just like men telling Jane things. I mean, obviously the sapphic overtones of the first part of this chapter are pretty hard to ignore, which is crazy because this is like my third or fourth time reading it. And I totally went over my head uh, the first several readings, but it is overt. Uh, she is deeply in love with Diana and, to a lesser extent, Mary. Well, we I think, like, a lot of times we have these, like, really intense female friendships. And we don't ever think of them as anything but, like, intense female friendships because of, right. like, compulsory heterosexuality. Um, although I think Charlotte Bronte, I have been convinced, was not compulsorily <laughs> heterosexual. But I think, like, our de- a part of that is our default of being like, they were friends. You know? <laughs> and so, like, that's an interesting contrast. But also what I find so not baffling, because I think, you know, you're right to say that Jane has met a mirror and she doesn't like it. But the conversations of men explaining stuff to her about themselves, but also about her. Like, this isn't altogether that different than the first conversation that she had with Rochester about money. And he wasn't paying her a ton of money either. I don't remember if it was... Yeah, I I literally... I was like, I feel like 30 is what he was paying her. I also felt that when I read that. I was like, so... He was way under market. According to Sinjin, if Sinjin's to be believed, and 30 pounds is a meager amount of money. Which we agreed it was a meager amount of money for her to be paid originally. And so in so many ways, like, Sinjin is a mirror of Jane, but he also functions as, like, a funhouse mirror of Rochester himself. And they do have these weird tete-a-tetes. He is a person with hidden depths. Like, Rochester's depths were not hidden, I guess. Like, But that was the <laughs> thing that she, like wanted him to do like that was her thing at the end when she left him she's like you have to practice restraint you have to practice like good religion you have to do these things and Sinjin does all these things yeah and she finds it repulsive yeah because it's it's herself you know yeah that's what she does she's aloof and unavailable and like meanwhile you know like you said, like Mary and Diana are effusive, you know. Rochester mm-hmm. is effusive. And she like loves it. <laughs> yeah, she's super into it. Which I think would be trite without Sinjin being there. Like I think her falling in love with the same. It also would not be clear that she has this pattern 
of longing in her life, right? And we even go back to her schoolyard friend who had messy hair and dirt under her fingernails and was like, Helen Burns, who is just like, you know, extolling on like virtue and everything Mm -hmm. at all, you know, was also like not a still, it's not a case of still waters run deep. Like Jane is Mm -hmm. very attracted to like the churning ocean, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. But she recognizes that Sinjin has the churn and that it's actually quite close to the surface. And then she doesn't like it. Yeah. Like what's the, I think the thing is, he can keep a lid on it. I, I don't think she likes seeing lids as much as she thinks she does. I think she Yeah, thinks, I think that's exactly right. Because of her outburst at the very beginning of the novel, I think she thinks people like lids. Um, and she's mm-hmm. tried to convince herself people like lids, and she's created this great lid. Uh, and now she's seeing someone else with a lid, and she's like, God, that fucking sucks. Yeah, because like, it feels like you're a little bit of a liar. Like, I can't trust you because, like, I, your lid is too good. Maybe she's starting to, yeah, understand Rochester's, like, crazy tactics for trying to get her to have an outburst. Uh, yeah. Cut to Orson Welles' wrist. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, though. Catching the door. Like, so good. Uh, so good. Ugh. Ugh. Like, goosebumps. All right. Anything else to be said about Chapter 30? I'm as tired as I imagine Jane is of men explaining things to her. Yeah, same. Uh, With that, uh, loosen your chains. But never your heirs. That's the one.